0: We're going to be in Matthew 28 this morning, if you want to open up your Bibles to that place. I sat down in a coffee shop and began to prepare for Easter. And I thought that I would just move through the Gospels and the places where it talks about the resurrection of Jesus. And I would just continue to look at those scriptures until something hit. And it hit. Immediately. And it struck me how Easter celebrates the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And you would think that's like the happy ending. Better than Lord of the Rings. Because it was about to end crummy. Jesus is executed. And it was going to be a crummy end. And wait, he's raised from the dead. Now that is a they lived happily ever after kind of ending. Isn't it? And yet what I'm seeing here is that This is not a happy ending to the Gospels. It is a happy beginning of something bigger, something eternal, something worldwide. So, what we're going to see this morning is how the resurrection reveals Jesus to be the Most High. And the resurrection has a most high purpose, which is to bless the whole world through Jesus' disciples. And we're going to see how the resurrection encourages and enables Jesus' disciples through the life of the Lord Jesus himself. So I'm going to read in Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, as he said, Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed, He is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now we're going to skip the next part down to verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. even to the end of the age. Amen. So in the first part of this chapter, the news comes to Jesus' disciples that he is raised from the dead. And at the same time, they receive his command to meet him in Galilee. That's what's happening in the first part. And you remember that Jesus' disciples are not in a good state emotionally. They have been devastated to see Jesus, who did hundreds, if not thousands, of miracles and taught like no man ever spoke, and he's been killed that just did their heads in. They were emotionally blasted to the point where in Luke, you have the disciples, those two guys going to Emmaus, and Jesus shows up, and they don't know it's him, and they're talking to him, and he says, what's going on that you're so sad? And one of them just, kind of snarls back, kind of emotionally frayed. Because he's blasted. He says, we thought he was going to redeem Israel, and now it's been the third day since this happened. Are you the only guy in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's going on? So the disciples are not in a good state. And you know, these women here are not there to greet the risen Savior. They're there to anoint the body for burial. Death is the end of hope. Except everything here works against everything that we know. There's this angel that descends from heaven, rolls away the stone covering the tomb, and he sits on it. But you know, it's not to let Jesus out, he's already gone though the stone was still there. And he tells the women, don't be afraid. I know you're looking for the one who was crucified. He's not here. And he gives them a command from Jesus. He says, "Um, tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And then he's going before you into Galilee. They're supposed to meet him on a mountain in Galilee. And then as they're going, they actually run into Jesus. Now, again, I don't know how to imagine this, but can you imagine going from emotionally devastated to what is the opposite? Minds blown, they're grabbing Jesus' feet, and he's not beat up anymore. And then he gives them a command. Tell my brethren, I am raised from the dead, go to Galilee, I'll see them there. Now, what I found interesting is the fact that, yes, he is alive from the dead. This is fabulous. No doubt about that. And yet Jesus has a command, a purpose. He wants them to do what he says. Now, if an angel told you to go to a mountain in Galilee, would you do it? And then if you ran into Jesus on the way and he said, go to a mountain in Galilee, would you do it? I thought, yeah, I'd do it. Like, whatever he says, do it. So that stuck in my mind. is really important. He's alive from the dead, but it's not just resurrection. It's resurrection with a purpose, but it only gets greater from there. Now, what Matthew does in the gospel here is skip over the meetings that Jesus had with his disciples in Jerusalem, and he goes directly then to the 11 disciples meeting with Jesus on a specific mountain that he told them to meet him at, okay? Okay. And then Jesus speaks to them, and this is what is known as the Great Commission, where he commands them. He has a purpose for them. So again, it's not the resurrection and the end of the movie. It's resurrection and a purpose. And he tells them three things. Now, the first thing that he tells them is there in verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead establishes him as the Most High. That's what the resurrection means. All authority... All authority. What is authority for? Authority is that you can tell somebody else what to do. And they do it. And they don't go, eh, don't feel like it. I don't want to play ball. I got something else to do. I'll do that when I have more time, if at all. No, all authority. Now, this is something Jesus was challenged with before his crucifixion. He would have some authority or religious leader come to him and say, what authority do you have to do these things? And that would be a continual thing. Who do you think you are? What are you doing? Who told you to do this? And the answer is, God the Father gave Jesus the authority to do these things. He says, I'm not doing this of myself. I am doing everything that the Father shows me. Now, sometimes people could handle it, and other times they're just playing games with him, and he wouldn't play games. So when they challenge him one time to say, by what authority do you do these things you just dumped over all the money-changing tables, and you just let all the animals loose in the temple, and you just drove everybody out, by what authority do you do these things? He says, fine. I'll ask you a question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? And then I'll tell you. And they go, well, we don't know. Because if we say no, the people are going to kill us. And if we say yes, he's going to say, why did you not believe him? So we're going to just evade that and say, I don't know. He says, fine, I'm not going to tell you either. So he didn't play games with people, but this is the poke. Who gave you this authority? Answer, God. God if you want to receive it or not. But you know, this is a step further. This is a step beyond anything he's ever said, that he has all the authority of God himself. All authority. It's kind of hard to get your head around it, isn't it? Now, This is actually shown to us in the scriptures. And it's in Daniel chapter 7. This is what it says in verse 13. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So imagine this heavenly scene and The clouds of heaven are with this person, the Son of Man, as he is presented before the Ancient of Days, the Father. And to this Son of Man is given glory, dominion, authority, a kingdom which will not pass away. This is the glorification of Jesus. The Son of Man is an interesting term. That was Jesus' favorite name for himself. He would also call himself the Son of God, um, the Messiah, all kind of things, but most often it was the Son of Man. Son of Man. Now, do you know that this spot in Daniel is the only place that the word or the phrase, Son of Man, is applied to the Messiah. Nowhere else. But it was his favorite name, because he is saying to everyone, I am that guy. That's who I am. The Son of Man. Now, I have a problem with Daniel chapter 7. It's always bugged me. And that is, after you see the Son of Man receive the glory, the kingdom, the dominion, you never see the Son of Man again in Daniel chapter 7. This has always bugged me. It's like, what? The Son of Man. He is the most important one. He is the Son of Man. This is who Jesus is. What happened to him? Now, in Ezekiel, God uses the phrase son of man all over the place. He's always calling Ezekiel son of man. Listen to me. Son of man. Tell the people. Son of man. But Ezekiel is not the son of man. Does everybody get that? Out of the entire Bible, Daniel 7 is the only place the Messiah is called the Son of Man one time. It bugs me. Where did he go? Now, I'll tell you something. The rest of the chapter, you see The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. Okay, it's that eternal kingdom, and his saints are going to receive it. That's the kingdom. Now, who's the Most High? I thought it was just another name for the Father, because you get that in Genesis. It'll refer to God Most High. Like, Melchizedek was a priest of God Most High. That's Genesis 14. And I think, okay, the saints of God. Fair enough. But then I saw something as I was reading through Daniel that I never noticed before. And this is why you keep reading your Bible even though you don't get all the answers to your questions. Because someday, you will get the answer, and it'll blow your mind. Because in verse 22, in Daniel chapter 7, I'll read it for you. Verse 22. Listen to this. Until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High... And it struck me for a minute, if the Most High is another name for the Father, why would it refer to him to two different things at the same time in the same verse? And it struck me, the Most High is a different person from the Ancient of Days in this chapter. And maybe you got that on the first bounce but I've been reading Daniel for 40 years and I've missed it every time. But the Son of Man is still in Daniel chapter 7 only after he's presented to the Father and receives the glory, he's no longer called the Son of Man. He's called the Most High. He's still there. And that's a relief to me. I don't like anybody to go missing. But this this now gives us a different understanding of who Jesus is. It is shown in Daniel 7, the Son of Man becoming the Most High. Now this is taught explicitly in the New Testament. In Philippians 2, verse 8, talking about Jesus being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When it says that Jesus Christ is Lord, that means he is the Lord God Almighty. The name above all names, all authority in heaven and earth. Now here's Jesus on that mountain in Galilee And he is addressing his 11 disciples as the Most High. He has all authority. He is the possessor of heaven and earth, all authority. He is to be obeyed. Now, this resurrection of Jesus, showing him to be the most high, leads to the highest purpose there is, which is that his resurrection would bless the entire earth. Now, this is what God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, the Apostle Peter refers to this when he preaches the gospel to the Jews in Acts chapter 3. This is what he says. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham... And in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. He connects the resurrection with blessing for them. But then, that blessing is to go further. Then the Jews. Isaiah 49, verse 5 says, And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So imagine, God's eternal plan is to take one man, make him a nation, from that nation bring the Redeemer, who then, because he's raised from the dead, now, brings people to God from the nation of the Jews, from every nation, every tongue, every tribe, all over the earth. It's a blessing for the entire earth. That's what Jesus is talking about right now. And you bless the world when you make disciples for Jesus, of all the nations. That's how God's going to bless the world. Okay? What's a disciple? Well, he says here, it's someone who is baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We understand the ceremony of baptism. You get into a swimming suit and a t-shirt. And you fill up your cement pond here with water. It takes a day and a half. And then you get in there and they put you in the water. And then they bring you up. And what that signifies is that person being baptized identifies with Jesus, declares himself to be one with Jesus in his death and burial. When Jesus died, I died. And then that person identifies with Jesus in his resurrection. When he rose from the dead, I rose from the dead to newness of life. I am not living the same life I am living when I went into the water. Now all of that is symbolism. But behind that symbolism is the reality. It's not just a sprinkling of water and Day by day, in every way, I am getting better and better. This is an actual exchange, my life for his life. And it is so that instead of living for myself, I live for him who died for my sake, and rose for my sake. That is what life means from here on out. That's what it means to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. A person is placed into Christ and takes on those characteristics of what he's been put into, God. And I've explained it before. It's like making pickles. You take cucumbers, and you baptize them into vinegar and spices. And you close the lid, and you leave that cucumber there. And when you come back to it, it's been changed. It has taken on the characteristic of what it has been baptized into, the flavor of the spices and the vinegar. And it's changed. That is no longer a cucumber. You would not hand this to somebody and say, have a cucumber, because they would say, it's a pickle. That's no cucumber. Cucumber. And you know, it's never going to go back to being a cucumber. Ever. And that's what it means to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. A change where you take upon yourself the characteristics of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's what a disciple is. Okay, how do you get all the nations there? Here, little nation, come into this pickle jar. Come on. He says you gotta teach them. You gotta teach him to observe all things that I have commanded you. So a disciple is a learner. You have to learn everything that the master is teaching. He doesn't have something to teach, and then you ignore that. You have to learn everything that he's got to teach, and you learn him. Because that's what Jesus said. He says, take my yoke and learn of me. So we're not learning only doctrine but we're learning Christ himself. We're experiencing Christ himself in his humility. Mostly in his humility. And that's something to learn because we're all arrogant and proud and self-centered. And here we are learning what it means to deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow Him. This is not something you get out of a book. This is something where you experience what it means to be under authority and to do what that authority wants, which is lay down your life for someone else to make their lives better, That's learning Christ. And you find that he spoke the truth when he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. See, the world thinks, nah, I want everything. And when I have everything to me, I will be happy. Jesus says, nah, that's kid stuff. The blessing is in giving and making someone's life better and loving them. And you will enter into my blessedness when you live like me. So, teaching. A disciple is a learner. Now, did you know that evangelism is teaching? Don't think about throwing yourself next to an electric fence to kill yourself. That's evangelism. I have to die. (laughs) Evangelism is teaching. And you have to start with people where they're at and find out what they don't know. And then start there. So you got Ophelia talking to her nephew on the phone, and she's teaching him. He's getting there. You got Aaron talking to his friend, teaching him to the point where the guy says, well, look, we need to sit down and study the Bible and get this straight. Aaron says, fine with me, man. Let's keep going. Teaching. See, that's evangelism. And then after someone understands who Jesus is, who they are, sinners, and how important it is to receive Jesus. Then they start learning and learning. And you got to teach them after that until they turn around and start teaching somebody else. You see, that's what a disciple does. So, You got to be established in Christ. You got to learn Christ. And then you got to teach somebody else. That's what a disciple does. And see, this is the highest purpose there is. There isn't anything more important going on. Can you imagine? This is a blessing to know God and to make him known so that people can receive eternal life. What's more important? All right. Now, is anybody overwhelmed at this point? Because you said, okay, what's his face just told me? i got to evangelize the world. Is that like before noon or what? Do you get get kind of tense feeling about this? It's kind of like, "Ah, I don't think I want to do this. I want to get back to my business. I want to get back to my guitar. I want to get back to Netflix. I want to get back to, where are those Doritos? I want, I don't want to make disciples. See, I get a little tense that way. I get a little burdened. I get a little freaked out. What do you mean, be a missionary? Want to sign up for death? Death camp? Okay, what happens? You die. I don't think I want to do that. Why would you do this? And this is the amazing part, it seems to me the really thrilling part. Look what Jesus says. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The resurrection of Jesus enables you to do what he commands. So, I have felt inadequate. I have felt like, uh, I don't have enough guts to do this. I have continually hit that wall of, I'm not enough for this. I'm not sufficient. This overwhelms me. I, 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 I don't know enough. Have you ever felt that? And you think, I don't bring enough to the table. Why don't you get somebody who knows more? Who's more experienced? I'm sure he's out there somewhere. Why don't you do that? You know that that's what Moses said. Go get somebody who can talk good. Nobody's perfect. You think, man, I have to represent God. I make mistakes. Just like Pinda when she was thinking, I don't want to show that I don't know how to do the tray thing here. I don't want to be vulnerable in front of people. But do you know that Jesus faced every difficulty and obstacle you can possibly face? And he overcame them. Every single one of them. So, you know, people criticized him and said, well, he's doing his miracles by the devil. How would you feel about that? I just healed somebody and somebody says, well, that's the devil, it's a trick. How would you feel about that? They opposed him, they hated him, they misunderstood him. He'd go to dinner at somebody's house and he wouldn't, You know, wash his feet or anoint his head with oil, just a common courtesy. Poking at him. Your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. Why don't you go find a puddle and jump in it? But picking on him all the time. You know, he faced a bunch of people who he would heal them, and they wouldn't even thank him. They'd take the healing and run off. Fabulous, what a great job I have. You know, his own mom showed up with the family to stage an intervention, because he says, you know what? He's not even. He doesn't even have time to eat. He's crazy, he's gone off the rails. We have to save him. Jesus, you're consuming yourself with your zeal. That's what it says. <laughs> I'm supposed to, mom. And then he gets beat up, slapped, mocked, betrayed, pierced, thirsty and choking for air. And then he died. Now that's that's a big one. It's really hard to come back from that obstacle. But then he overcame all of that. He overcame being dead. That's not an obstacle. His body is raised to glory and imperishability, it will never decay ever. And he overcomes, really, all the criticism, all the opposition. Nobody can wag a tongue at him. Now, they do it, but I wouldn't want to be in their shoes ever when he shows up with a rod of iron to smash the nations nobody will be able to criticize him. That's over. Even if he has to face demons, monsters of iniquity, principalities, powers, doesn't matter. He has overcome everything, all of it. And then he says to these guys, I am with you always. So what obstacles do we face? What did they face? Government? uh, Thick-headed religious leaders? uh, Indifferent Gentiles? Who worship idols? And then, you know, Transportation system where your boat goes down and somebody can jump you and rob you. And all those things that Paul talks about, all those difficulties, famine, peril, sword, people mocking you. You know, that Jesus. Overcame all that with the apostles and the disciples. And you know, we got one other obstacle that Jesus did not have, and that is ourself. Because we have to deal with our own hearts. That we get tempted and we're unwilling, we get tired and cranky, and just say, I don't want to. I'm not into this. But, dear, you're the pastor. Be into this. I don't want to be into this. What, did I just tell somebody a secret? (laughs) I tell God, hey, I'm done. Can I go home now? Crickets. No answer. Nah, keep on doing it. Doing a great job. I don't even get that. Do you know that the apostles got discouraged? Paul. He witnessed for the Lord in Jerusalem. Nobody got converted. Nobody said, sir, what must I do to be saved? They all said, why isn't he dead? We've got to kill him. And so... On the night immediately following the Lord stood it aside and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Now I bet that Paul was just feeling like a complete dud. Some apostle I am. Nothing. Witnessing the heads of state, this is our big chance. It's like, no, ballots, bullets bounce off. They don't listen. No action. But see, Jesus wouldn't let Paul feel bad about it. Isn't that interesting? I remember a time when I thought, I have done so badly, I just want to crumble together. And it was like Jesus was inside, holding up all the pieces, saying, you know what, if you want to feel sorry for yourself, you can. But I will not let you crumble. I thought, well, that's kind of (laughs) nice. And see, Jesus is going to overcome for you in the same way that he did for the Apostle Paul. Because of the power of his resurrection. You know, for myself, I'm a pessimist. I am positive it's not going to work. <laughs> but I, professionally, I have to be an optimist. I have to believe in Almighty God who's going to do this thing. I have to. Now, that's a miracle. And this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves, to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. So here's Paul saying, hey, I don't bring anything to the table, but I give you what I receive, and I can do this all day long, because I keep receiving it to give to you, because that's my sufficiency. And that's the life of the risen Lord Jesus. So, what you're supposed to do with this is first of all believe Jesus. When he says, I have all authority in heaven and earth. You're supposed to believe him. Because he does, whether you believe it or not. And then you're supposed to receive him as Your Lord, as well as your Savior. All nations will serve Him. You can start right now. And you obey Him right now because He's commanding you with all authority. It's not me you have to answer to, it's him. He is commanding you right now. So he's offering you his death and his resurrection. You obey him and receive that. And then be his disciple because he rose from the dead. You are his disciple. So that means you're a learner. Everyone who has received Jesus must learn from him. Now that's why we've got our Bibles. Everything in the Bible is going to make you a good disciple of Jesus. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus without the Bible. Because the Bible is the word of God that transforms you to think like Jesus and to act like him. It is not possible apart from the Bible. Does everybody get me? So you are responsible for the whole Bible. Now, that's why I teach the Bible on Sundays. That's why I teach the Bible on Fridays. That's why I teach the Bible on other days. They're designed to teach you to think biblically and to grow. They are a service for you in order for you to be a disciple of Jesus. You know, that's only twice a week. And you need need seven days of walking with Jesus on your own. You develop your life with Jesus. And you do it in the Bible because that's where you listen to him, that's where you talk with him. That's where you get answers for your prayers. So, this is going to become much more practical when you realize you got to be teaching somebody about Jesus. This is what disciples do. So you don't have to be like, you're here, get them to line up there, and then you hit them. This is something that you do all the time everywhere you go. Everywhere you go. You just find out where a person's at with the Lord and then give them what they need. Now, are you teaching anybody right now? And if you're not teaching them, are you praying for them so you can get an opportunity to teach them? So you just pray for people. Say, Lord, open doors. Start opening doors. Who do you want me to talk to? And you'd be ready so when the door goes, you go fine, right through it. And that means you have to know what you're talking about, doesn't it? You ought to know what you're talking about. And that's why Bible studies make a lot more sense if you realize I got to start teaching somebody and I don't know. Come on from Sick'em. And you know, if Friday night is a bad night for you, and if Sunday morning is a bad time for you, why? What do you have that preempts learning about Jesus? What do you have on that's more important? Now, if, you, if, if that time really does stink for you, you come and talk to me. Because I've taught some of the smallest crowds in the world. And I've gone to people's houses and taught them. I'll teach you. And I'm absolutely dead serious about this. My job is to get you so that you know what you're talking about so you can teach somebody else about Jesus. And I'm happy to do that. But I hope most of all, this Easter, this week, you let Jesus encourage you. All of those objections you have to talking to that person or reading that or whatever, they're not very good objections. Even the fact that you're not into it, it's not a good objection. Because Jesus has more heart than you. He has more desire than you. He's raised from the dead, and he's not really having an emotional crisis like you are. And so you say, okay, if you want to encourage me, why don't you do that? Encourage me with your everlasting life. and your authority above all. You encourage me. I am the flattest pancake in the universe. Why don't you encourage me? And let him do that. Will you let him encourage you? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have blessed us By giving yourself to us. Giving your life. Giving your son. And Jesus giving his blood. And it is more blessed to give than receive. And today we want to give ourselves to you because you are the Most High. And it is right. You're worthy of our lives. Please make us the people that you want us to be. And work in us to touch others that they might know the glory of your resurrection, your eternal life. Be glorified. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.